0: You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. Sermon on the Mount, part three, Jesus and the Law. So the context here to remember is this is the Sermon on the Mount. This is one of the largest cohesive bodies of teaching uh, from Jesus himself in the New Testament. This, this sermon spans several chapters Of the gospel. A lot of times we get sort of little snippets of things that Jesus said. This was an entire sermon by Jesus to his disciples. They were out hanging out and he gathered them around. It says the disciples sat down at his feet and he began to teach. Now there were onlookers and people in the crowd that were there, but he was primarily focused on his audience, it says, is the disciples. And we've been talking a lot about. What we call the Beatitudes, which is the blessed are the, the famous blessed are the cheesemakers. The Monty Python people laughed. That word we've talked about is Makarios, it means how to live a fulfilled life. And we spent two weeks talking about it because um, Jesus' idea of blessed is not wealthy, it's not necessarily even just. Uh, feeling fancy and, and carefree. It's a fulfilled, purposeful, joyful life of meaning and purpose. And that the wisdom that he's been laying out there is very antithetical to what comes naturally, to what the world outside of Christianity thinks will make people happy. And so he finishes that section. We finished it last week. And then he turns and talks about what he calls the law, And what Jesus means by the law is very much set in Jewish culture, not 21st century American culture. And so we have to unpack that a little bit. He says in verse 17, do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until it's accomplished. And so we have to kind of draw back and do a kind of brief overview of what is the law. And in a Jewish context, Jesus is a Jewish rabbi teaching to a, what was almost certainly an exclusively Jewish audience 2,000 years ago. And so in Judaism, there's what's called the Tanakh. The Tanakh is just what we call the Old Testament, okay? And that is divided up in different ways. In Jesus' time, there was what was called the law or the Mosaic law or the law of Moses. And when the, the Old Testament or the New Testament talk about the law, they're talking about the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. In Hebrew, that's called the Talmud. And so when he talks about the law, he's talking about the books written by Moses. The prophets, or the Nevim, were books like Joshua, Judges, Kings, and the Major and Minor Prophets. And then the writings are the Ketuvim, which were the Psalms, Proverbs, Wisdom Literature. So this is the way that Jewish people today, and in Jesus' day, they've divided up the Old Testament in the law, the prophets, and the writings. And that's what he's specifically talking about here. When he's talking about fulfilling the law, he says, "I'm going to fulfill the law and the prophets, and I'm not. I have not come to abolish the law, change the law, alter the law. I've come to fulfill it." Now, Mosaic law also breaks down in different ways. Now, this isn't from. This is a way that a useful way that theologians have broken down. The Mosaic Law, but it's very helpful to understand. You can look at the Mosaic Law and there's three different categories of law. There's ceremonial law, that's washing, religious observances, teaching tools. These are things that apply to Judaism. The ceremonial law is the ceremonial rules for Jewish worship. And so When you think about the law, you have the things that the priests are to do, the sacrificial system would be a part of the ceremonial law, washings, uh, the calendar of, of celebrations and events. That's all ceremonial law pertaining to if you're Jewish, those laws are to guide you in your Judaism. Then there was civil law that is also in the Old Testament. Because you have to remember, ancient Israel was led by God. So God literally wrote the code for civil law. The penalties, if you do things, what was bad, what was good. And this was specifically for the operation of society and applied to the nation of Israel. When God gave them these laws... He was literally dwelling among them. It says he had his own tabernacle that was among them, and he would lead them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And it was like he was the king. The king writes the laws. That's the civil law that you read about in the first five books of the Old Testament. And then there's what we would call the moral law. The moral law is just what's right or what's wrong, what's good and what's bad what's evil, and what's virtuous. And that's given by God saying, I'm the creator of the universe. These are the good things to do. These are the bad things to do. And those laws don't ever change because God never changes. Those laws are a reflection of God's own character, and they apply to everyone because everyone is under God's authority according to the Old and New Testaments. So Jesus is specifically talking about the Mosaic Law, and you can understand the Mosaic Law this way. It's helpful. Now, in addition to that, culturally, in Jesus' day and today, you had what they referred to as the oral traditions of Judaism. This is called the Talmud, the Talmud is divided up into different sections. The Talmud itself is the body of written and oral traditions of the law. So this is rabbis who have interpreted the law, who have helped and tried to help people clarify what Moses was talking about, getting down into the minute details of life. How, does, how do we follow the law? What does it look like? And originally there was the Mishnah, which were the oral traditions that were sort of passed on. The rabbis would pass on their interpretations, and that would be Mishnah. And then those eventually got written down, so they were no longer technically oral traditions. But they are the ways different rabbis interpreted different things that Moses said. And then there's the Gemara, which is the rabbi's commentary on the Mishnah. Now, these things were very important in Jesus' day. And a lot of people knew about the Talmud and knew about the traditions and interpreted the law of Moses through the Talmud. And a lot of times they didn't even know what was from God and what was from man. So the Talmud is, and what I would say, is opinion of rabbis about what God meant. In Jesus' day, it was considered highly authoritative, even though God didn't say it. These were godly men who came up with their interpretations, and it had basically the same weight as the law of Moses itself. However, it got really complicated. To give you an example of how the Talmud worked or how these oral traditions work, if you feel confused, just focus in on this point. Okay? So you have the Mosaic Law, which says that you shall keep the Sabbath holy. The Sabbath was on Saturday for them. God created the earth in six days. He rested on the seventh day. The seventh day was Saturday. And that was a day where you were not supposed to work. And you were to keep it holy. But that was really as specific as God got. Take a break, don't work. Spend time with your family and spend time with God. And so the rabbis came in over centuries. You know, they would just add more and add more and add more. And they would ask important questions like, well, what does it mean to work? Obviously, if I go and and clock in, I'm working. But if you're a farmer who lives on your farm, what is work? Well, if you go feed the cows, that's work. Oh, I can't do that. We have to follow the law. We have to obey the traditions. We have to obey the Mosaic law. Don't feed the cows. Don't feed the chickens. Those are work. And then it's like, okay, but uh, you don't plow the field. Okay, but what is technically plowing a field? You know, if you go out and you're carrying a rake and it drags behind you, it makes a little furrow, uh uh, uh that's working. It even got to the point where it got down to like, well, if you spit in the ground, it makes a little tiny hole, and that's furrowing, so you can't spit on the ground on the Sabbath. And they had all kinds of ways that, you know, they had volumes and volumes and centuries of people writing, picking, 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 picking down to the finest details. And this was considered the law of God. And so if you were, this is why today even, if you go and you buy a refrigerator, it might have Sabbath mode. There are appliances that have Sabbath mode because your refrigerator is not, also not allowed to work on the Sabbath. If you're refrigerating something, that's work. And this is just interpretation, right? The question that this is asking is what did God mean? And these are people who are in earnest trying to say, okay, I really want to follow God with all my heart, all my soul, so I don't want to work on the Sabbath. What does that mean? But you give man a couple of hundred years with those kinds of questions, and we can go places with it that are not particularly helpful. And Jesus is saying here, he is all about the Mosaic law. He did not come to abolish the law, not one jot, not one tittle. He is all about the Mosaic law. The oral traditions, not so much. In fact, Jesus would go out of his way to kind of poop on these traditions from time to time in fantastic fashion. You'll remember the story of uh, the, the wedding at Cana. Jesus took water that was for ritual washing. That ritual washing was part of the oral traditions of men, where you would go in and you would take a little shell, and this was symbolically you were washing any sin that got on your fingers during the day so that when you touched your food, the sin wouldn't go on from your fingers to the food and inside your body. And God never said anything about that. This was the oral traditions of men. So when Jesus went to the wedding and they ran out of wine, he was like, bring me the stuff that you guys use to wash the sin away. I'm going to make that into wine. Another good example of how Jesus violated the, the oral traditions would be when he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda, he said, pick up your mat and walk. Pick up this little rollaway mat that you're lying on because he, he was crippled from birth and he healed him and said, pick up your mat and go home. So he picks up his mat and carries it. And the Pharisees come along and they're like, hey, 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 oh, what are you doing carrying something on the Sabbath? That was Jesus telling this man to break the oral traditions, but it had nothing to do with the Mosaic law. All right. So take all that in and read it again. Do not think I came to abolish the law, Or the prophets, I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus is saying, I am all about the Bible. What about the Mishnah? Crickets. Silence. I'm about the Bible, Jesus says. I didn't come to abolish, contradict, change, or fight with the law of Moses or the prophets. In fact, they're about me. Now, you have to take that in, too, because if you're a Jewish audience, well, I mean any audience, today, if I stood up here and said, have you guys read the New Testament? And you're like, yeah. I'm like, it's about me. Yeah, you would be like, woo right? That's what he did. He just stood up in front of a whole group of people and said, hey, have you heard of the law of Moses and the prophets? That's about me. I am the fulfillment. Now, there are literally hundreds of messianic prophecies about about the Messiah, where he would be born, when he would be born, the circumstances of his birth, all these different things, how he would die, all these things so that the people would understand and know who the Messiah is when he would come. And Jesus is saying, those are all about me. And then there's also fascinating things that I would love to get into, like the sacrificial system, which was ceremonial law, was all about, the sacrificial system was a teaching tool. And the teaching tool was you had to take an innocent animal. People were like, why did God want them to kill animals? That seems so cruel. And it's like, yes, actually, that is the point. The fluffy little doe-eyed, big-eared, floppy animal that never hurt anyone. That was the point. The point was that we are sinful people. We're in rebellion. The penalty of sin is death. And the point of participating in the sacrificial system was to understand that something innocent that doesn't deserve it has to die in our place or else we have to die. We have to be judged by God unless we have Something or someone who can take our place. And ultimately, if you study your New Testament, you know that Jesus is the fulfillment of that sacrificial system. No sins were ever forgiven because of the sacrificial system. It showed people that a sinless substitute, namely Jesus, would have to come and take the judgment of God in our place. So he's the fulfillment of the prophets. And the messianic prophecies, he's the fulfillment of the sacrificial system. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Jesus is not in conflict with the law. He is in conflict with the teachings of the Pharisees about the law. And it's very under- important that we understand, in, in view of all this, the purpose of the law. The law has several points, several main purposes that God gave us the law. The first one is, it's to teach us what God is like. That when we study the moral code of God, God didn't arbitrarily just say, I like this and I don't like this. God said, I'm the creator of the universe. I am perfectly good. I am perfectly moral. And so if you understand who I am, you as beings created in my image will begin to understand what you are supposed to be like. God's standard for morality is his own nature. He says, if you're like me, you're good. If you're not like me, you're bad. And I created you to be like me. However, I did give you free will. And if you want to rape and pillage and murder, you are free to do that, but there will be consequences. I will not let evil go unpunished. And so if you think about the different aspects of the law, the law teaches us to be good, holy, honest, truthful, just, merciful, righteous, pure, all those things, all those things are just as true about God. And so the the law, the Mosaic law, the moral code of the Old Testament is like a lens through which we can learn about and understand the character of God. And in learning about and understanding the character of God, we learn about his intent for how we are supposed to live, how we're supposed to be. He explained this in the book of Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. It's one of the first five. It's the law of Moses. It's written by Moses. And just before he had Moses give all the people of Israel the law, he said this to Moses, give the following instructions to the entire community of Israel. You must be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. He's saying, you have to be like me because part of being perfect and part of being all-powerful means being just. And being just means you have to attack and destroy evil. And if you are not good, you are evil, you will be under my judgment. So the law is a reflection of God's moral character. Another purpose of the law is to show us how far short we fall. God is perfect. We are not. I hope nobody here has any tension with that point. The fact that we want to be good, we try to be good, we have good things about us, but we mess a lot of stuff up. We hurt a lot of people, we hurt ourselves, we we try, but we fail, and it's a mess. The human race is a mess. And it always has been, ever since the garden that we fall well short of the standard of perfection. Romans 3, 10 through 12 says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one, none who does good. There's not even one. The entire human race is flawed because of our rebellion against God, because we've used our free will to do things that are despicable to one another. And God is just and God is good, and he cannot let that go unchallenged. So Jesus' audience is in a different camp. They have been raised, these disciples and these onlookers, have been raised under what we would call Pharisaical Judaism, the Pharisees' version of Judaism. Now, I know you've heard about Pharisees, but you might not know what they are. They are the ones who, at this time in history, are in charge of the synagogues. They had synagogues back then just like they had today, right? So these are the rabbis who are in charge of the synagogues, the daily inner workings of people's spiritual lives. The Sadducees were the other group. They were about the temple in Jerusalem. But the Pharisees were the teachers, the purveyors of Pharisaical Judaism. So if you were going to synagogue, you were under the teachings of the Pharisees. And Jesus' disciples were synagogue goers. They had been raised under the teachings of the Pharisees. And what the Pharisees taught was that the point of the law is to live up to its standard. God says, thou shalt not kill. Do not kill. God says, do not commit adultery. Do not commit adultery. If you can and you should and you will obey the law of Moses and if you do, you'll be blessed and if you don't, you'll be cursed. They would often trace anything that bad happened to you, anything that, any bad circumstance in your life and say, well, what'd you do? What law did you break? And you can imagine at this particular time in Jewish history, what you've got is this pagan Roman empire has come in and taken over the nation of Israel. And so obviously the Pharisees would be like, what did we do? Our hearts have been far from God. God is allowing this to happen to us because we have not been following the law. It's time to double down on the law. And the way we're going to get these Pharisees out of here is we are going to become these Romans out of here, is we are going to become so righteous, such perfect followers of God's law, that he's going to send us the Messiah, and he's going to destroy the Romans and set up a thousand-year reign of Israel. So this was a hyper-legalistic, hyper-ritualistic understanding of the law in a time period that was hyper-legalistic and ritualistic. Jesus comes in the midst of this fervor of about do what's right, do the rituals, obey the oral traditions, the strictest possible ways of following the law. You can keep the law, you should keep the law, you will keep the law or we will be on you. Because we will not tolerate unrighteousness among the Israelites. The attitude of the Pharisees was very much, you need to be righteous and follow our example. Look at how clean we are. Look at the, we don't even eat food without washing every little finger individually. We give, we, we serve, we tithe, we, we, we obey the Sabbath. I won't even carry my mat on the Sabbath. I won't even spit on the ground and make a little furrow because that might be plowing. I take the little leaves from my window herb box in my kitchen and I cut 10% of the little leaves off because we're supposed to give 10% to God. That's how righteous and how law-following you need to be. And if you're not like me, if you fall short, it's because you are weak and you're despicable. That was their understanding of the Mosaic law from Pharisaical Judaism, and even the disciples were raised this way. So Jesus starts talking about this, and he says, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And he sounds like a Pharisee. I'm sure if there were any Pharisees listening, they're like, who is this Jesus guy? He sounds quite nice. They're like, oh my gosh, he's on our team. Score one for Jesus, the Pharisees are like, I like this guy. And then he says, for I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Gong. Now, if you're a Pharisee and you're sitting there and you're listening to that, and you're like, yeah, tell him, Jesus, obedience to the law. And what does he say here? He says, the Pharisees and the scribes are not righteous enough to get into heaven. You have to be more righteous than they if you want to get to heaven. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Who could possibly be more righteous than us? Who could be more? I don't like this guy's teaching at all. He's a hyper-legalist. And you can see what he's doing is he's drawing them in, right? He's capturing them. Oh, he's all about the law. He's He's not gonna abolish the law. Not one jot or tittle. And then he lays on them But the Pharisees are not righteous enough. He says in verse 21, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. One of the 10 commandments. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. Wow. Jesus is the law liver of law livers. He's not saying, look, it's not just whether you commit murder. It's do you hate someone in your heart? That's just as bad as murder. Who's on board with that? You know, the Pharisees at this point are like, wow. He's taken it to a whole nother level. But look at the formula. He's talking about the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. And it's very important that we understand this. He's not talking about obedience to the law. He's talking about understanding what God meant when he gave the law. You have heard, he says, meaning the Pharisees have told you, what you have heard is murder is wrong. But I say, it's not just murder. It's what's on your heart. See, he elevates and explains the true meaning of the law of God's nature and God's heart and God's character to a point where anyone with any honesty and integrity whatsoever would have to admit, well, I violated that law. I'm not righteous. If that's the standard, if the standard is perfection and perfection isn't just what you do, It's what you think, and it's what's on your heart. How can there be any hope for me? What Jesus is saying is that hate is evil and deserving of God's judgment. Even if you don't act on that hate, it's what's in your heart. Then he goes on, and he explains what that means. He says, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, the offering would be the ceremonial law. It's the sacrificial system. The Pharisees are teaching, if you hate your brother and you want to kill him, go and make a sacrifice to God and you'll be forgiven. And Jesus says, actually, if you're at the altar and you're going to make a sacrifice uh, so that you can be forgiven, and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there. Get out of there. Don't do it. Leave your offering before the altar. Go First be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge the officer and be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you you will not come out of there until you have paid the last cent. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? He's saying the Pharisees say, follow the ceremonial law and you will be clean. Make your offering and you are right with God. And what Jesus is saying is the point of the ceremonial law is to teach you about reconciliation. is to teach you about forgiveness and peace and harmony. And if you're going to make a sacrifice and you've got hate on your heart, forget about the ritual and go resolve with your friend. You will not benefit from the teaching point. The whole point of the ritual is to teach about forgiveness. And if you're doing the ritual, but you do not have forgiveness in your heart, it's worthless. And you can see the Pharisees, who their whole shtick, their whole thing is do the rules, do the ceremony, and you and God are good. And Jesus is like, that's not true get right with God, get right with people, and then do the rituals as a reminder of why you get right with people and why we should get right with God. And this is not radical teaching that's well outside of the Old Testament. Psalm 51, 17, the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken heart. And repentant heart, oh God. God, what we know that we what you care about isn't so much the ceremony, but it's what's on our hearts. That was written by David hundreds of years before Jesus ever showed up. It's very important that we see the consistency. Jesus is teaching the Old Testament, not the oral traditions. He's teaching the part that came from God. And he's saying the standard of God is much higher than the standard of the Pharisees. You have heard it say that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. I'm feeling pretty good. I've been married for 25 years, and I have never had sex with anyone other than my wife. And Jesus is like, you ever lusted for anyone else's wife? No. Really? Never in your 25 years in your heart have you ever thought about it. That's the standard that God works from. It's perfection. It's impossible. No one can keep the whole law the way God intended it. It's the same formula. You have heard the Pharisees say, don't commit adultery. I tell you, don't even lust after a woman other than your own wife. And by the way, it's okay to lust after your own wife. That's kind of cool. In fact, we recommend it. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's raising the bar. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out. Throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better to lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body to go into hell. He's raising the bar over and over and over again. The Pharisees thought they were being so righteous, so strict. And he says, actually, their interpretation of the law falls way short of God's intent. It's not just what you do, it's who you are. It's what happens inside. And Jesus' point is not self-mutilation. All of his disciples had all of their fingers and hands and eyes. What he's doing is he's using a figure of speech to illustrate the stakes. It is more important to be right with God than to have two eyes and two hands. It's so important. It's the most important thing there is, is being right with God. And the way that you get right with God is not through a ceremony. It's not through behavior. It's through your heart. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of adultery makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Boom, higher bar. The rabbis of his day taught, you know, you could divorce your wife for any reason. If she burnt the food, you could divorce her. All you had to do was say it three times. I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. Legal divorce, your wife is out, go find a new wife. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. If you do that, you're an adulterer but I'm following the traditions of the rabbis and the teachings of the Mishnah. What is that to God? That's man's interpretation of God's law. I'm here to, I'm God, and I'm telling you what God meant. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven by heaven. Uh, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your statements be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond this is evil. Don't make any promises that you can't keep. You have heard it said that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek... Turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him also have your coat. Whoever forces you to go one mile with him, go two. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away for him who wants to borrow from you. Give, give, give. Go overboard. Go over and above what is required, what is reasonable, and what is sane. You heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on evil and good and the good and sends his reign over the righteousness and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? It's easy to love likable people. It's easy to love people that like you. Don't even tax collectors do that? Don't the most despicable people in the world love those who love them? If you greet only brothers, what more are you doing than others? Even the Gentiles do that. Now, if you're sitting here and you're saying, who can live this way? I'm sure his audience was. More righteous than the Pharisees? It's about not just what you do, but it's about your heart. If a Roman punches me in the left cheek, offer him my right. Love my enemies. Love the tax collectors. Love the Romans. No one can possibly do this. Which is the entire point. The entire point was to bring his audience to a point of exasperation. Who can do this? This guy's crazy. No standard! No one could meet that standard! But remember, they thought they were righteous. They thought they were okay because they were going to the synagogues and they were abstaining from certain foods and they were wearing certain clothes and They went to the festivals and, you know, they knew that they had problems, but they could could do what the Pharisees taught, or at least close to it, or try. And Jesus comes in and says, you can't even come close to what God demands. And he wraps up this whole section with, therefore, to sum up, you are to be perfect like God is perfect. Comments, questions. (laughs) Can you imagine? Be perfect or die. But really what he does is he finishes where he started. Right back. If you want to get into heaven, you have to be like God. Leviticus 19.2. Once again. Give the following instructions to the entire community of Israel: You must be holy, because I, the Lord, am the, I, because I the, am the Lord your God, and I am holy. Be perfect, like God is perfect, or you're in trouble. That was the point of the law. That was the message of the law. I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The law was to show you how far short you fall. Remember the purpose of the law. It shows us what God is like. And by showing us what God is like, it also demonstrates to us how not like God we are. Paul wrote about this in Galatians 3.23. But therefore faith came. We were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor. The law is our instructor and it leads us to Christ. Because when we look at how far short we come from God's perfect standard, we cry out and we say, this is impossible, we cannot do it. And God says, yes, now you get it. And then we can be justified. We can be made righteous. We can be made perfect. Not by what we do, but by faith. Because now faith has come and we no longer have to be under the tutor of the law. The law shows us what God is like, it shows us how far short we fall, and then it shows us how to be reconciled to God. How are we reconciled to God? Is it the path of the Pharisees? The Pharisees say, lower the bar until you get over it. It was strict. It wasn't easy believism. But it was attainable. It was fake it. Show people how righteous you are. Convince them of how righteous you are. Do all the little things and all the little ceremonies and all the little washings and wear the right clothes and be in the right place at the right time Emphasize the ritual, the ceremony, which is supposed to teach you something and make it the whole point. Focus on behavior and ignore the heart. Because no one knows what's in your heart. So just don't show them what's in your heart. Fake it. James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point has become guilty of all. God's standard is perfection, because he is perfect. The path of God, as opposed to the path of the Pharisees, his standards include our heart and our intentions, not just our actions. God's perfect standard is designed to bring you to the end of yourself. It's to open your eyes to the fact that you have problems. God is perfect and he must be perfect. Meaning that if God doesn't destroy evil, then he is not good. People say, well, you know, if I'm just better than most people, then God will let me by. And it's like, no, no, no. God's measure isn't average human being is the standard for good and evil. God's standard is God's character, which is perfect. Every single one of us has to be perfect. Or we're in trouble. And what the law shows us and what this teaching shows us, what Jesus so clearly emphasized to his audience in their cultural context is that we are broken, we are insufficient, and we are in desperate need of a Savior. We will never make it on our own. I love the way Paul put it in Romans 7. I have discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave. But there is this other power that makes me a slave to sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will set me free from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. You see how it is? In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. You would never find, Paul's an ex-Pharisee. And what he is doing here is he's exposing the reality of his heart to everyone. He says, I love God. I love and want to be a moral man, but I mess it up every day. That is what is in his heart, and that is what is in your heart. That is what is in my heart. Because what we're looking at here is not the traditions of men, but it's the wisdom of God. It's real. It correlates with reality. And this is one of the most unique aspects of the Bible. So then, there's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. We couldn't keep it. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus came, he taught, and he told us, and he explained to us, it's not about outward actions, it's about the heart. We could never keep God's law. We would fall short every single time. We are hopeless to to get into heaven on our own power. But then he went on a cross, and God took the wrath that we deserve. He poured it out on himself so that we could be made perfect. And all we need to do is accept that. You see, the power of the law is when properly understood, the law shows you who you really are. And it's gross. It's flawed, it's broken, and it also shows you who God is, which is glorious and perfect, and it shows you the vast distance in between. That's the power of the law. But when you interact with it, when you open your mind and you're willing to accept that you are, in fact, deeply flawed, then it offers you a better way. Cease striving, God says, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. Let go of your self-righteousness. Let go of your determination to to be a good person, let go of your smug sense of being better than other people and admit that you have real problems and you need help and God will come into your life and save you. That's what I've got. God, we thank you that you are perfect and good and just. We thank you for the coherence and the consistency we see in your scriptures, Old Testament and New. We thank you for the glory of who we see when we learn about the law. We thank you for the mercy of who we see when we learn about the cross. And we are sinful people in need of a Savior. Thank you, God, for dying for our sins. Help us to grow and become more like you and help us to inspire others that they would want to know you as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.